Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. This is the 10th message in a series I've entitled, How God Treats His Children. The first message was on the fact that God blesses His children. Matter of fact, He blesses them with all spiritual blessings so that they can reach spiritual maturity. The second message was on the fact that God encourages His children to do just that to get to spiritual maturity. Then I talk about the fact that God in this life disciplines his children and that he can even get angry with them. I do not think he, gets, he disciplines them out of anger. I think the Bible is clear that he disciplines them out of love, but nevertheless, he can get angry. Then I talked about the fact that God rewards faithful believers. I'm using that phrase because we are told several times that he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. In order to explain that, we looked at a number of different subjects. We took a whole message to look at the judgment seat of Christ. And after that, we took a whole message to look at rewards, another to look at crowns and ruling in the kingdom. Then We looked at what the book of Revelation says about being an overcomer. And last time, we looked at the subject of inheritance. Now, all of those things I just mentioned are really making one point. And that is that God rewards his faithful servants. So, though I've had nine messages so far, I've really only made a couple of basic points. Number one... God blesses his children. Number two, he encourages them. He disciplines them. He can get angry with them. And he rewards his faithful servants. Now, I only have one more point to make in this series. It's going to take me several messages to make it, but I only have one more point. And that is this, that God disinherits his unfaithful children. Now, there are several passages of Scripture and several topics in the Scripture that we need to look at to see that concept. But the one point I'm going to make from here on out, and we don't have many to go, is that God disinherits his unfaithful children. Now, let's think about this for a minute. The last time I talked about the fact that the Bible refers to inheritance and that everybody has a basic inheritance. We all have an inheritance of heaven. We all have an inheritance of a glorified body. But the Bible is very clear, especially in the Old Testament, that there is some cases where there is a double inheritance. That's a concept of reward, that God is going to give those faithful children 
a bigger inheritance than just the basic inheritance. What I want to do today is talk about the fact that God could go all the way from giving you a double inheritance to a basic inheritance to no inheritance at all except for the basic inheritance of going to heaven and receiving a glorified body and that sort of thing. In order to do that, I want to do two things. First of all, I want to look at the Old Testament, see what it has to say about this. And then I want to look at the New Testament. There are three passages in the New Testament that talk about not inheriting the kingdom of God. But first, let's go to Genesis chapter 49. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 49. And while you're doing that, let me explain that in the book of Genesis, God gave Abraham an inheritance, so to speak, the promise of the land. Abraham gave that inheritance to his son, Isaac. Isaac gave it to his son, Jacob. So far, so good. We speak of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The plot thickens. I mean, it really thickens. Jacob has 12 sons. Who gets the inheritance of the land? Well, they all entered the land. So in a sense, they all got the basic inheritance of going into the land. But some got disinherited. Now, how did that happen? Why did that happen? And the explanation of that is in Genesis chapter 49. This whole chapter is Jacob giving an inheritance to each of his 12 sons. We're only going to look at three, the three who got disinherited. And the question is, what did they do to get disinherited? Well, look at Genesis chapter 49, verse 3. Reuben Jacob says, you are my firstborn, my mighty, and the beginning of my strength, the excellence of my dignity, and the excellence of my power, unstable as water. You shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. The little word translated excel in these verses means just that, to excel, to have the preeminence. But neither Reuben nor his descendants ever excelled. The leadership of the tribes went to Judah, the priesthood to Levi, and the double portion to Joseph. Reuben lost his right to inheritance. Now let me review, let me explain. As the firstborn, Reuben should have been given preeminence among his brethren, his tribe, leadership over all the tribes, priesthood within his family, and a double portion of his birthright. But he didn't get it. And that's what this passage says. He didn't get it. He had this enormous potential, and he didn't get the inheritance. Why not? Well, verse 4 says, because he went up 
you went up to your father's bed. What he did is he had an affair with his father's concubine. So sexual immorality is at the bottom of his disinheritance. So his father originally really chastened him for this. Um, That's written earlier in the book of Genesis. And now we come to chapter 49 where he's distributing the inheritance and he disinherits Reuben because of his sexual immorality. The other two that we need to look at are Simeon and Levi. In verse 5 it says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are their uh, dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. Jacob's law, uh, Jacob's last words to his son are, and in these, in their self-will, they will they hamstrung an, uh, an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, but it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in the land. Now this is a really interesting story. We are told that there was a man who violated their sister, Diana. And they got very angry about that, and they went to that city where that man was. He actually wanted to marry their sister, but he seduced her instead. And they prevailed against the people in that city, but they not only killed the man who was guilty of the sexual crime, but they slew the men in that town. Their anger and their self-will was so strong that they, it got out of control and they simply slew all the people in the town, the men. So now Jacob disinherits them. He does not want his honor to be connected with them. He curses their cruel anger and scatters them among the tribes of Israel. Because of their wickedness, they would have no tribal territory. Their descendants would live scattered among the land. Now there are two brothers here, Simeon and Levi. Let me deal with them individually for a second. The Simeonites had become the, became ultimately the smallest tribe. Moses passes over them in his blessing to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 33. They received only a few cities within the allotment of Judah rather than a separate geographical territory they could call their own. They eventually lost their tribal identity and lived among the other tribes, especially Judah. Let's talk about Levi. This one gets real interesting to me. The Levites did not receive a land grant. They did, however, receive several cities. And as you will recall, they were elevated to the priesthood. Now, how did that happen? If they, their forefathers, uh, Levi and Simeon, committed these horrific crimes and got disinherited, 
How did they get elevated to the priesthood? This is real interesting to me. They were granted a special blessing because they sided with Moses when the other Israelites rebelled against him. That comes much later in Exodus. It's recorded in Numbers. As a result of that, they became the tribe of priests, which is real interesting to me because Reuben and Simeon committed hideous sins, and that was the end. They got no inheritance, but Levi comes back and later sides with Moses, and somehow that got them the blessing of the priesthood. So here's the point. Because of sexual immorality, fierce anger, and cruelty, these brothers were disinherited, but they were allowed to be in the land. This is a great graphic illustration. They had a basic inheritance. They get in the land, but they should have been abundantly blessed beyond that, but they forfeited that because of their immorality, their anger out of control, and consequently, they got disinherited. Matter of fact, it seems to me, based on this passage, that you could say there are three groups here. There is, first of all, all entered the land. All had a basic inheritance. Two, some were disinherited because of their sin. And third, one group who should have been totally disinherited ended up getting a little bit of an inheritance because of what they did after the sin. So I find that very, very interesting. Uh, how much you can apply that to us and the New Testament, I'm not sure. But the Old Testament gives us the precedent, and clearly that is the case in Genesis chapter 49. Now, there are other cases of being disinherited in the Old Testament. We're not going to take time to look at it. I just want to mention that in the book of Leviticus, I'm sorry, the book of Lamentations, Joshua laments that his generation had uh, the inheritance turned over, their inheritance turned over to foreigners. So the Old Testament uh, talks about being Inherit, receiving an inheritance and being disinherited. Now, what about the New Testament? And this applies directly to us. Well, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There are three passages in the New Testament that talk about being disinherited. And this becomes a highly controversial subject. So we need to deal with it carefully. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, very clearly, 
there's a group of people that are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. I said this is a debatable subject, so let me explain. There are two points of view here. The most common is that this is talking about entering the kingdom of God. So the most common interpretation is that uh, if you practice one of the sins I just read, you will not even go to heaven. If you do this, some will say, you were never saved to begin with. They're called Calvinists. And others will say, but if you do this, you might have been saved, but you forfeited the salvation, and they are called Arminians. Now, which is true? In my opinion, none of the above. What? There's a third position? Oh, yeah. Now, let me just uh, give you a taste of the debate. What's going on in this passage? Well, if you read the first eight verses, it's very obvious that's what's going on in this passage is that there are two believers in a congregation who have some kind of a disagreement with each other, and in order to settle it, they want to sue each other. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So they've got a matter against each other and they want to go to court, a civil court. And Paul calls that an unrighteous court, meaning they're unsaved. You're going to take this before an unsaved judge? If you've got a dispute with one another, why can't the saints settle that? Take it to the saints. Let them do it. They can figure that out. You don't have to go before the unrighteous. So clearly, in verse 1, the unrighteous are unsaved people, right? Now drop down to verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Who are the unrighteous? Unsaved people, according to verse 1, right? So that group says, see, these verses saying, unsaved people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I told you there was a third position. And in my opinion, that's the correct one. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, no, you yourselves do wrong by going to court, and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. You see the word translated wrong? I'm reading from the New King James translation. Guess what that word is in the Greek text? Unrighteous. Ooh! He says in verse 8, you are acting just like those unsaved people. You, believers, are unrighteous. Then he says, to explain verse 8, not verse 1, to explain verse 8, don't you know that unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So I think he's saying that if you practice these sins, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, let me spell this out very simply. 
You got to have a PhD in theology to get this, okay? There is a difference between entering a house and inheriting a house. Got it? I know you have to think to get that. Some theologians don't. He's not talking about entering the house. He's talking about inheriting the house. And he lists a bunch of sins, all of which get you disinherited. And the great illustration of that is Genesis chapter 49. Now, I want to look at these sins for a second. That's really interesting. Fornicator. That's a general term for sexual immorality. It could apply to any illegal, illicit sexual activity. Then he says, adulterers. Now that's a special kind of sexual sin. One or more of the parties involved have to be married in order for there to be adultery. He mentions homosexuality and sodomites. sodomites. I've often wondered what was the difference between... Have you ever wondered what's the difference between those two? Uh, one commentator says... They're both homosexuals, one's active and one's passive. That's the best explanation of it I've ever been able to find. Then he talks about um, uh, thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers. But before he does that, uh, he mentions idolatry. And that could be sexual-based because... The pagan worship at that time involved temple prostitution. So that could be a sexual sin as well. But my point is this. He leads with all of these sexual sins, and that is exactly what got Reuben disinherited in Genesis chapter 49. But he adds to that, wow, uh, thieves, Covetous, drunkards, those are self-explanatory. Revilers, those are who abuse others. Extortioners, steal money. Now, we might put these sexual sins over here in a category and make them the big sins. But how about, um, how about covetousness? You ever coveted? You mean that's in the same category as homosexuality? Yep. I didn't say that. Paul did. He put them all in the same lump. Now, I want you to put that on the back burner. I'm going to come back to this point in a minute. But the point I want to make is that it's not just sexual immorality. It's not just what we would call the big sins. It's little things. Did you ever steal anything? Did you ever tell a lie? Ever been covetous? Ouch. So I think this passage is simply saying that, and by the way, what they did here was want to go to court. They, they had a disagreement with another brother, and all they wanted to do was to go before a civil court, and he says, that's unrighteous, and the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God. Suing somebody that's a brother could cost you your inheritance. See what I'm saying? That's what this passage is saying, in my opinion. 
You know, Paul in the middle of this passage says, just suffer the loss. Just, if you went to court and lost, just suffer the loss. Now, why would he say that? Because you would be better off suffering the material financial loss now than being disinherited later. That makes this passage make a heap of sense to me. I said there were three. The second is in Ephesians chapter 5. So turn to Ephesians chapter 5. These passages get increasingly clearer and clearer, in my opinion, that he's talking about believers. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. As Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness and or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Wow. He's clearly saying, don't commit all of these sins. And then he says, here's why. Verse 5. Notice it starts with the word for. Do you see that? If you heard me say before, and you'll hear me say again, when a verse in the New Testament starts with the little word for, he's going to explain what he just said or give you an illustration of what he just said. Verse 5 is an explanation for why believers should not commit the sins mentioned in verses 3 and 4. And here's what he says. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Wow. It seems to me he is saying that you as a believer should not commit these sins because you will forfeit your inheritance. Now, you'll get the basic inheritance. You'll go to heaven. That's not the point. The point is you will not inherit in the sense of getting the bigger inheritance, the double inheritance, which you should get. And I would simply point to the Old Testament as an illustration that they all went into the land, but some forfeited the additional inheritance they should have gotten because of their practice of sin, all kinds of sin. In one case, it was anger and cruelty, as well as sexual immorality. Now, is this talking about unbelievers or talking about believers? In Ephesians 5, have I convinced you it's talking about believers? Have I? The proper answer is yes. You should shake your head, yes. Would you like for me to prove it? I just did, verse 5. Would you like for me to give you another proof? Read the passage carefully. Go back to verse 3. Let fornication, all uncleanness, which is always connected with sexual sins in the New Testament, or covetous, let it not be named among you as fitting for saints. He says a saint can commit that sin. Did you see that? Let it not be named among you. What does that mean? That a believer can commit fornication and covetousness. And while he's at it, he covers what we would think of as the little bitty sins. 
foolish talking, verse 4, coarse jesting, which are not fitting for saints. The whole point of the passage is you shouldn't do these things. You shouldn't let this be named among the saints because it'll cost you inheritance in the kingdom. So, he says in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because on these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Uh-oh, we got a problem. Who are the sons of disobedience? Well, earlier in the book, in chapter 2, the sons of disobedience are unbelievers. So those who believe the inheritance passages are talking about unbelievers point to this and say, see, he's talking about unbelievers. Well, in verse 6, he does reference unbelievers. That's true. And he said God gets angry with sin, and we've already looked at the fact God gets angry with unbelievers and believers. So what's the point of verse 6? The point of verse 6 is this. Don't be deceived into thinking you could do these things and get away with them just because you're saved. Because the wrath of God now comes on unbelievers. And you should not be partakers with them. Look at verse 7. Therefore do not be partakers with them. Granted, verse 6 is talking about unbelievers, and verse 7 is saying, don't be a partaker with them of God's wrath. If you get involved in the sins that are listed in this passage, God's going to get angry. So don't, don't, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't be a partaker of the anger that's really poured out on unbelievers. You will be a partaker of the anger that's directed toward them. So I think the passage is very clear that believers can forfeit their inheritance. Got it? Got it. And maybe experience some anger of God down here in the meantime called discipline. <laughs> I was uh, talking about this passage with a pastor friend of mine. And uh, he told me a story. Now, in order to appreciate this story, you got to know that Quakers are pacifists. Are you aware of that? They're conscientious objectors. They do not participate in war or violence. This is what he told me. He said, did you ever hear the story about the Quakers whose house was being robbed? In order uh, to appreciate this story, now you got to keep in mind, it's a Quaker. And the Quaker is a conscientious objector. According to the story, the Quaker said to the robber, I would not hurt thee for any reason, but I'm about to shoot where thou art standing. <laughs> and my pastor friend said, the Lord isn't doing this to believers. He's going to pour out his wrath, his anger on unbelievers. Don't stand there. There might be collateral damage. So, I think that's the point of the passage. All right, one more. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And this is my favorite. In grappling with this subject, this is my favorite. And I've wrestled with this for a long time. 
finally came to the conclusion that a believer could be disinherited to some degree. We should look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outburst of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envies, murder, drunkenness, rivalries, and the such like. And I told you beforehand, as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we've got the same problem here we had in the other two passages. That is, there are people who will say that, well, these are unbelievers. Because a believer couldn't possibly do these things. You can't be a believer and practice these things. And so they say, this applies to unbelievers. Now, as I have already committed myself, I am of the opinion that believers can commit every sin in this passage. Would you agree with that? Are you speaking autobiographically? And in some cases, yes! I mean, look at the list. Do you ever have an outburst of anger? And some of you are going to say no. But many of you will say yes. And the reason I say that is because there are two kinds of people. There are those who blow up, and there are those who stop it. And there are people who don't blow up. And by the way, they marry each other. Right? And all the married people said, keep moving right. One person blows up and the other just shuts up. So let me look at the passage and see if we can find one for you. Are you in here anywhere? How about um, jealousies? Selfish ambition? Envy? Look at this. Envy is right next to murders, plural. Did you see that? You ever been envious? You're in the same category as a murderer. And if you hang on to that, it could cost you some inheritance. Say, are you sure this passage is talking about believers? Well, let me ask you, can a believer commit these things? But let me show you in the passage. Back up to verse 16. Verse 16 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Did you see that? If you're walking with the Lord in dependence upon the Holy Spirit to give you the enablement to do what God says, you will not do what? Fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now let me ask you a question. Suppose you don't walk in the Spirit. What will you do? Is it safe to assume that you would fulfill the lust of the flesh? Is that clear from verse 16? All right, now what we've got to ask is, what is the lust of the flesh? Well, uh, drop down uh, to verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are. He says, if you don't walk in the Spirit, you'll fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now let me spell that out and tell you what the lust of the flesh is. 
Verse 19 and 20 are telling you what happens if you don't walk in the Spirit as a Christian. So this passage is clearly saying that an unbeliever can commit these kinds of sins and an unbeliever will therefore be disinherited to at least some of the inheritance. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? The reason this passage is so convincing to me is because of verse 16 and because of the sins that are mentioned. There isn't a person listening to me who's honest with themselves who would say they've never committed any of these sins. We're all guilty of something in that. All right, so you may not have killed anybody. Whippy-doo. How about envy and jealousy and outburst of anger? So what he's saying is walk in the Spirit so that you live a righteous life, which is actually a loving life, and you won't be committing all of these sins. Now, I've made a point out of the fact that most commentators think inheriting the kingdom is entering the kingdom. All right? I want to be honest. I want to be forthcoming. Full disclosure. But there are those who believe that and they come to this passage and they are forced to admit that what I'm saying is true. So I'm going to quote a couple of them. These are commentaries, well-respected commentaries. And these, the first guy especially believes that you can't inherit the kingdom means entering the kingdom. Here's what Hendrickson says. Quote, with a majority of commentators, I hold that the apostle mentions the particular vices in the list that follows because they needed to be mentioned. In other words, the Galatians were not yet gained a complete victory over these evils, though here, as always, the degree of success must be varied with the individuals. Exactly! He's saying they're guilty of this, and that's why Paul brought it up. Are they believers? Yes. Another commentator concluded, quote, Although these features are typical of such a category in the comparable Jewish literature, they probably reflect the actual behavior of the Galatians, end of quote. So, both from an exposition of the passage and experience, I say believers can do these things And Paul says if you live in those kind of things and you practice those kind of things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I can go on and on in that regard, but uh, I think there's no question. Some commentators even go beyond what I just said and say that, uh, and this is more speculation than observation, but that the Galatians were practicing all these sins and you understand the point of the book of Galatians is some of the Judaizers came in and said, you've got to keep the law. One commentator, very respected scholar, says the reason that Paul had to do this is because the, Ju- the Galatians were committing all these sins and the Judaizers came in and said, no, 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 you can't do these things, you must keep the law. And that's how the whole book got to be written. Now, whether or not, that's probably going a little too far. We don't have any 
information or evidence in the book that that's what the Judaizers were doing. But we do have evidence that believers in Galatia were doing these things for whatever reason. And for whatever reason the Judaizers came, this it seems to me is very clear. Walk in the Spirit and you will not commit the sins of verses 19 through 21. So, if you do, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you've heard me say before, I think inheriting the kingdom involves ruling and reigning with the Lord. And so you will not rule over ten cities. You will get less of an inheritance. But the point I want to make today is simply this. Even though believers will enter the kingdom, if they live in sin, they will not inherit the kingdom. That is, they will not rule in the kingdom. All right. I want to do one more thing to close. I want to spell this out as clearly as I can by asking two questions. Number one, what must I do to enter the kingdom? You know? I want to show you a text that tells you what you must do to enter the kingdom. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And look at verse 5. Jesus is talking. Most assuredly I say to you, that unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What must you do to enter the kingdom of God? Be born again. Verse 7. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Why? To enter the kingdom of God. Now the only problem with verse 5 is what's the water? Is that baptism? No! What is it? Well, back up a verse or two. Jesus said to him, verse 3, Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus said born again, and what's Nicodemus thinking about? <coughs> Physical birth, right? So Jesus comes back in verse 5 and says, no, 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 except the man be born of water. What's that? That's physical birth. Every mother knows this. The water bursts and the baby's born. So water in verse 5 is physical birth. How do you know that? Verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So don't marvel that I say unto you, you must be born again. He's talking about physical birth, born of the flesh, and then he's talking about spiritual birth. So verse 5 is saying, except a man be born of the Spirit, born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the point of this passage is this. What do I have to do to enter the kingdom of God? Be born again. John 3, verse 5. All right. Now, next question. What do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? 
Now, the answer to that is a lot of things you can do to inherit the kingdom of God. I've touched on many of them, I'd say most of them, if not virtually all of them, in this series. And by the way, I keep numbering the series because I think it's important that you hear the whole series. I have never numbered the sermons I've preached in a series. Never. I did it in this series because I think it's important that you hear all of these. They're online, the church website. If you've missed them, go back and pick them up. This is a very important subject. It's going to determine your place in eternity, not whether you get there or not, but what kind of rewards you get when you get there. So based on today's study, I would say, that in order to inherit the kingdom of God, you need to live a righteous life, which is nothing more than a loving life. There is an American named R.T. Kendall. You probably never heard of him. He went to Oxford, got a Ph.D. in theology, and became the pastor of the Westminster Chapel in London, one of the most famous pulpits in the world. Uh, if you know anything at all about 20th century Christianity, uh, G. Campbell Morgan pastored that church, Martin Lloyd-Jones pastored that church, and R.T. Kendall became the pastor. He's back in America now, but for many years he pastored that church. I want to quote him. This is what he says, quote, Are we to say that anybody who does any of these things, for example, envy and strife, is not going to heaven? Not at all. But such things as covetousness and foolish talking, as well as sexual immorality, forfeits one's inheritance in the kingdom. End of quote. That is a succinct, a summary as I've ever heard. So, you have a choice. Life is a race. I see little signs say life is the beach and life is a picnic and life is the... Life is a race. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, runners run in a race, but only one gets the prize. So run to get the prize. So I want to end by saying life is a race. And here are the options. You can either run after the flesh or you can run after the Spirit. If you run the race of running after the flesh, you may get some pleasure here, but you will not get the prize there. If, on the other hand, you run after the Spirit here, even to the point of sacrificing things to do it, you will be, well, as I mentioned last time, you will have an abundant entrance into the kingdom. So you've got a choice. If you've trusted Christ, you've got a choice. You can either run after the flesh or you can run after the Spirit. So how do you choose to run? In the book, Thinking and acting like a Christian. The author tells a story of a world-class woman runner who was invited to compete in a race in Connecticut. 
On the morning of the race, she drove from New York City to Connecticut, following the directions given her over the phone. She got lost, stopped at a gas station, and asked for help. She knew that the race started in a parking lot of a shopping mall. The station attendant also knew of such a race scheduled just up the road and directed her there. When she arrived, she was relieved to see in the parking lot a lot of modest number of runners preparing to compete. It was not, however, as many as she had been led to expect. She hurried to the registration desk, announced herself, and was surprised by the official's excitement as having such a renowned athlete show up for their race. No, they had no record of her entry. But if she hurried, she could put her number in, and they would make, and she could make it before the gun went off. She ran and in the race, and naturally, she was a world-class runner, and she came in first, four minutes ahead of the first male runner who came in second. Only after the race, when she discovered there was no envelope containing a sizable prize and performance money, did she realize that the event was not the race she thought she was entering? That race was several miles further up the road. She had gone in the wrong race, ran the wrong course, and missed the chance for winning a very valuable prize. If you run in the wrong race, you will end up at the bima, the judgment seat, empty-handed. But if you run in the right race, you could be wealthy indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the opportunity to serve you, to serve you from the heart, by walking in the Spirit and having this promise that if we do, you will give us an abundant entrance into the kingdom and graciously reward us. Thank you for that possibility. And may the Spirit of God indelibly impress it upon our hearts so that we run in the right race. In Jesus' name.